Hear, Israel. Those are the words we heard read for us from Deuteronomy 6. They're also the words you see up here. I don't know. Surely you've noticed that there are four banners um, across the stage here. This first one, connected to the second one, connected to the third one, connected to the fourth one, these words come from Deuteronomy 6. They're important words. They're an important call. Hear, Israel, Deuteronomy says. Hear, Israel. They're words that call to attention, right? If someone says, listen up, you're going to pay attention, right? I woke you. Did I wake you? I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to disturb you there. If someone says, listen up, you're going to pay attention. And here in this pivotal moment in the life of God's people, hear Israel. Listen, Israel. I learned these words first in youth group. How many of you learned these words of Deuteronomy 6 in youth group? We sang these words, right? And um, uh, that's how I learned them. And in so many ways, so much of Scripture is imprinted upon our hearts and our minds because we've put them to, to music. And so we sang together, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. Remember that? And then I always got confused because I couldn't remember the order of the other words. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, or... No, we didn't put them up there. But that's how we learn them, right? They became etched upon our hearts and on our minds. It's the Shema. It's the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for hear. You might uh, notice these squiggly lines down here at the bottom, and you might be curious about those squiggly lines. They're kind of small. I don't know if you can see those at the bottom. Those are Hebrew words. They look like uh, characters or calligraphy. Um, and you read them from the, not from the left to right, like H-E-A-R, but from the right to the left. And so words, uh, uh, the word in Hebrew, Shema, is down here at the bottom this is uh, the uh, letter that we would sound with an S sound. This is an M and an A. And so you have the consonants that form the word uh, Shema. Whether in a whisper or whether in a shout, God leans in towards God's people and says, Hear. Listen up. Pay attention again. Right? They are entering, in Deuteronomy 6, they are entering into God's preferred and promised future, the word that God had sounded forth when he called forth Abram and Sarah and called forth a people out of Egypt, that he's, he's leading them forward. He's led them on the journey. He's been there all along. A pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night. They can look up and see and know God's leading, that God is pressing them into a future that God's work in the world, His love, His desire for the whole creation is being worked out, and God has chosen them. He's vested God's own life and future in His own people, and He's drawing and leading them forward. And they stand on the banks, on the cusp of God's future. This is the God that is moving, that is leading, that is going somewhere, that's drawing them forward. There's a sense of God's purpose and propelling them forward, and he stops in that moment to say to them, Hear, 
Israel. Here. Moses will not make the journey the whole way. He knows he won't be with them as they walk into the fulfillment of this future and in all the days that will unfold before them. And so he leans in with God and with God's people to say this word, Shema, hear, hear Israel. In one sense, this becomes their prayer. It becomes their traveling prayer. I like that kind of phrase, a traveling prayer. One, as you move along, as you're journeying along, a prayer you carry with you, the Shema is like that. It's the traveling prayer for God's people. They are entering into God's future and wherever God may lead them. And when they settle in the land, you know enough of the story to know that that will not be the last place that they find themselves, right? They will experience the blessing of place and abundance and prosperity and all the goodness of God and they will experience exile and suffering and hardship as well, but in every move of God, His presence will be with them, and this prayer will guide them. Hear, listen, Shema, Shema. It's the prayer for God's people on the move. Another way to say it, it's the prayer for God's people on mission. Mission simply means that God's up to something. He's working something out. He has a purpose toward which a telos, an end towards which all things are moving. He's a God of mission. And he calls his people to be a people on mission with him in whom God's own desires are being manifest in their life and through their presence in the world to other people, God is bearing witness to that purpose. He's a God of mission. This word Shema, this prayer that forms around Shema is a prayer for a people on mission. So central was this prayer, characterized by its one initial word, here, that it was the centip- became the centerpiece of synagogue worship. Synagogue worship. So, uh, little uh, excursus here for a moment. So, Israel gathers in Jerusalem, where the temple is the center of their life and worship, yes? And people would come from wherever they are, they would come to the temple to offer their sacrifices and worship, except for that time in Israel's life when Jerusalem was under siege and destroyed and they were scattered. The Jewish diaspora means scattering. And they lived in different places Their expression of their life and their worship and coming before God could no longer be centered in Jerusalem because they had been pushed out of Jerusalem. And so they established synagogues, local communities, sound familiar? Local communities, wherever God placed them in dispersion, wherever there were 10 or more families that came together, they could establish a synagogue. It was a house of worship. It was something like a family life center where they were sharing life and they were being formed by, uh, to be God's people. They were learning the stories. They were passing them on to their children. The synagogue 
And the records that we have of synagogue worship consistently say that the people gathered and ordered their time together in synagogue worship in a certain way. And at the center or the the head, the beginning of that worship, guess what they prayed together? It's kind of an obvious answer. (laughs) They prayed the Shema. They stood together and they recited these words. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Synagogue worship was centered in this call to attention, this prayer, the Shema. It's not surprising that in some of the earliest written historical documents about early Christian worship, that when they gathered together, they ordered their worship life, often meeting in homes and in places of dispersion, that their worship services were shaped after synagogue worship, and guess what they prayed in early Christian worship assemblies? The Shema. The Shema. They stayed connected to this call to attention, this call to love the Lord your God above all else. They prayed the Shema in early Christian worship assemblies. And then you know what they did? They began to attach to the Shema Another prayer. Can you guess what that one was? Hello? The Lord's Prayer. Right? They prayed these together. In other words, what I want to say is that the Lord's Prayer, given by Jesus as a gift to his disciples, pray like this, was connected. It's almost like it was born out of the whisper of the Shema. Here, O Israel. O people of God, the Lord our God is one God. Love the Lord your God. The prayer calls us back. It's as if God's voice is cutting in. It's cutting through the noise that surrounds us. It's cutting through the noise that's within us. Did you know you got a lot of static going on between your ears? There's a lot of stuff going on between your ears. Sometimes it's deafening. Sometimes we recognize uh, the noise of the world around us. It seems like a roar. And I appreciate so much um, the prayer that called us to worship this morning, that recognized the clutter and the chaos of the world around us, right? Thank you for wording such a beautiful prayer. And... um, And that noise is deafening, and there needs to be a moment where we lean in, and God cuts right through that and says, here, here again. Remember, wait, wait, wait. Don't get lost in the noise of all that distraction. And sometimes I want to say that noise is not only out there, it's in here. Right? It's within us. It's within our own hearts, in our own minds that are troubled the anxiety that sets upon us, the voice. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that has a lot of self-talk going on in their head. Yeah. It gets noisy in there. And something needs to cut right through and say, um, I, I, I imagine it as a gentle whisper. Stephen, hear, listen, listen, 
the Lord, your God, is one. Cuts right through that. How many of us have had this experience with our little ones? My uh, granddaughter just turned two. One of my granddaughters just turned two. She's just getting really verbal, like some of you know. And when she wants to communicate something to us, and she's learning her words and all of this, and she wants to tell us something, she will reach up and grab our face like this and turn it so that we're looking right at her. I don't know of a kid that hasn't done this. It's as if they instinctively know that communication requires attention, that relationship requires attention. They're trying to get our attention. They don't say it, but in their actions, they're saying, look in my eyes. When they, when they turn your face, look in my eyes, right? The irony of this is that as they move through their twos, how many moms and dads are grabbing the faces of their children and turning their heads and saying, look in my eyes, right? There's something about this prayer. It's as if God is leaning down, maybe more gently, to put his hand on our cheek and turn our attention again and look into our eyes and say, I want you to hear this. Listen. Maybe this Shema is something like that. Oh, God, help us to see you and listen again. I had a friend in, the, uh, in Buffalo Gap where I preached for several years when I was living in Abilene, just south of town, and I told you this story before, so if you've heard it before, um, you get a bonus story uh, today. His name, is Don, his name was Don, and uh, met Don because um, we began to think about our life together as the church in Buffalo Gap and how many of us drove from places around the little, small, you know, maybe maybe not 500 people in the community. <laughs> we drive from Abilene out to Buffalo Gap, and it's scenic out there. It's a pretty drive, if you've been there. Um, other people attended church there that lived out in the country, and they would drive into Buffalo Gap. Um, but there were people that lived in the community of Buffalo Gap, and we were disconnected. We didn't know the community at all. And so we began to think about, well, how do you get to know? How do we, we've got to... We've got to be invested in the life of this community, and, and someone, his name was Sam Cochran, a member at our church, one of the people who drove from Abilene out, he said, well, if I wanted to get to know my neighbors, I'd invite them over to the backyard, and we'd have a barbecue, we'd cook out, and we'd sit in the backyard while around the grill, and we'd sit down at the table, and we'd eat, and someone said, that's a great idea, let's have a cookout, we'll do a community cookout. And so we organized ourselves, everybody got together, and we put the word out, flyers at the post office, we put, made a big banner to put out in front of the church building. So Sam brought his grill from home in the back of his truck, and we set it out there, and we, you know, everybody pitched in and organized for the cookout. So here we were, the night of the cookout, it was on a Sunday night, and People were chopping lettuce and chopping tomatoes and onions, and the smoke was going up from the grill. We were waiting and invited all the community to come as a community cookout. And we waited, and we waited, and no one came to a community cookout. It was just us. 
We thought, not literally, but we thought, Doo. someone had the wisdom to say, that's okay. And we ate and we prayed together that God would send us friends and that we would come to know the life of our community. And we said, we're going to do it again next month. So we did it again next month. We're chopping lettuce and onions and tomatoes and the meat's on the grill and the smoke's going up and we wait and we wait and we wait. And I think there were two people from the community that came. One of them was Billy Wilson. And Billy sat there with us and we had all this food was just us from the church, little church there, and Billy and another friend, and and we said, what are we going to do with this? And Billy said, well, I know a man who lives in a bus. We said, what? He said, I know a man who lives in a bus. He'd probably appreciate a hamburger if you wanted to pack it up and take it to him. We said, okay, and that's how we met Don. Don lived in an old, broken-down school bus out a country road on a little piece of land no running water. He had a water tank. Uh, some solar panels and some batteries. And he lived in a bus. Don had lived a hard life. A hard life. And he was skeptical at first, but over time he'd invite me back. I'd stop by and we'd sit in lawn chairs out behind his bus and he would put on a pot of coffee one of those little tin percolator things that you set on a campfire. He'd build a little campfire, and he'd tell stories, and we'd talk. And I'm telling you about Don because in one of our conversations, Don said this. I wrote it down. That's why I have it all these years later. Here's what Don said. Don, by the way, because of his health, didn't ride in vehicles. And so he would walk places. If he needed to go up to the little store to get something, he would walk from his bus he would walk all the way out there and walk back. If someone offered him a ride, he'd say, no, 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 I don't want to ride in cars. The jostling of the car, something about it, he, he, and Don has since passed. His health problems were severe. So he walked places. Eventually, he would walk all the way to the church building to sit with us on Wednesday nights and eat with us on Wednesday nights. So I sat with Don on one occasion, and he said this to me. We were sitting, having a cup of coffee, and Don said, when I walk, it helps to clear my mind so that I can manage the pain. He lived with pain constantly. He said, I walk so that I can clear my mind and manage the pain, and I listen to God. He's near to all of us if we just listen. If we can clear our mind enough to hear Him. So I walk and clear my mind. And listen to God. I'm telling you, Don was leaning over to the lawn chair where I was sitting. And he was saying, Shema, listen, hear, hear. Well, what is it that God so desperately in the words of this prayer, Shema, what is it that God so desperately wants us to hear and to know? That's what I want us to think about in this series. We'll, we'll worship together elsewhere next week, community worship, and we'll come back around these words on the stage, and we'll spend some time in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. But this is what I want you to know today. 
He wants you to know. He so desperately wants your attention. Listen, let me, let me grab your cheek. Listen. He wants you to know that he's faithful. He's faithful to the promises that he made. Those promises have been spoken and declared, and God is good for it. His promises are to you, and you don't need to doubt it. He is trustworthy, and he is true. He is moving all things to be made whole and complete and good. He's making us whole and complete and good. He's making the world whole and complete and good. And you can trust that it's true. Maybe the difference between religion and faith is that religion leads you to believe that God's promises to you are dependent upon you earning them or getting them right. And faith is believing, trusting, that no, God's promises are true and they're unconditional. They're trustworthy. So hear, people of God. Hear this, people of God. Our God is faithful. And he wants you to know as he leans down to get your attention and my attention, that he is one, which means against the backdrop of the other religions that Israel finds itself with a multiplicity of gods, that he is the one true God who knows you, who created you and knows you and loves you. That the deepest desire of your heart, which I will tell you what it is today, at least this is what Stephen thinks, the deepest desire of your heart is. I know it's the deepest desire of mine. The deepest desire of our hearts is to be known and loved unconditionally. Think about it. How much of what makes you who you are in the deepest recesses of our person is this desire to be known? You know how I know this is true? Because that's why we hide ourselves. Because we're afraid that if you really... If you really knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. Our desire is to be known and being known to be loved. And what I'm telling you this morning is that what God wants to say to you when he leans over and says, Here, O people of God, is that you are known and you are loved. The Lord our God is one. He is that kind of God in his oneness, right? He wants you to know that, and he wants you to know that everything that makes you who you are finds its source and fulfillment in love for God and that love from God. You can love God with everything you got. You don't have to hold anything back from God. He loves you, and he wants you to love him with everything you've got, your whole heart, your whole being, it says on this banner, heart mind, soul, strength. You don't have to hold anything back. What is it that in the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ, that somehow we've created an environment where we can't love God with abandon, with passion, with everything that we have? I want you to know 
people of God, hear this, that love for God is at the center of all that we are and all that we have and all that we hope for. We are a fragile band of pilgrims, you and I. We move through life with hope and anticipation, disrupted by uncertainty and anxiety. We see through a glass dimly our Uh, These bodies are frail and they're broken. They're not made to travel to eternity. And while we celebrate the healing and pray for the healing hand of God, His ultimate healing is beyond these bodies. We are a fragile band of pilgrims. We laugh, we cry, we hurt. So in a whisper... And sometimes in a shout, God leans in to say, hear this. The Lord, our God, is the one who knows you and loves you. He is faithful even if and when we are not. He knows you and loves you and all that you want or need is found in God's abiding love. It is enough. It is enough. And so if that word, Shema, rests upon your heart today in ways that move you and lead you, to say, I surrender to the love of God again, I pray that that will be, um, that the desire of your heart will be declared I pray that you'll come, those, to declare that this way I surrender my life, I lay my life down in the waters of baptism to the love of God, it is enough. And from this point forward, my journey will be marked by surrender to the love of God who loves us and pursues us unconditionally. I pray that you'll hear that, that Shema will rest on you in that way. And as we gather around this table in these moments, that you will remember even as we take these things that draw us up into the life of Jesus, his body broken, his blood given, that this is the posture, the way of self-giving love. And it's enough. This bread is enough. This cup is enough. The love of God is enough. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. Shema. Thanks be to God.